Dr. Alan Leica here, and I'd like to welcome you to How to Live a Fantastic Life Show, where we will be discussing the important aspects of your life. We hope to inspire you to live the best life you can. Get out of your comfort zone and explore the awesome world around you. Break through your barriers. Take inspired action. Use the difficulties in your life to achieve the best version of you. Ladies and gentlemen, today is a very auspicious day in aviation history. 13 years ago, on January 15th, 2009, U.S. Airways Flight 1549, an Airbus A320, on a flight from New York City, LaGuardia Airport, to Charlotte, North Carolina, struck a flock of birds shortly after takeoff losing all engine power, unable to reach any airport for an emergency landing due to their low altitude. Pilots Chelsea Sully Sullenberg and Jeffrey Stiles glided the plane to a ditching on the Hudson River off Midtown Manhattan. All 155 passengers on board were rescued by nearby boats with only a few serious injuries. The water landing of a powerless jetliner was with no deaths became known as the miracle on the Hudson. And the National Transportation Safety Board official described it as the most successful ditching in aviation history. The board rejected the notion that the pilot could have avoided ditching uh, by returning to LaGuardia LaGuardia or diverting to another airport. Everybody knows the story. It was dramatized by the 2016 film Sully, starring Tom Hanks as Sullenberg. Today, we have five amazing guests who were intimately involved with this story. We have Valley Collins, who was a, a passenger there. We have David Sanderson, another passenger. We have Ben Bostick, a passenger. And we have Stefan Malone, who was the photographer who took pictures of the flight afterwards. And we have Paula Paul, who works with Ben to give us another perspective on this. So I'm going to start in an order that I think will work the best because I know these people and, and I think it'll go well. For those of you listening, I'm going to start with Dave Sanderson. I've had him on my show before. And I want Dave, Dave, tell us what were you doing at the time that you were, you got on the plane? What was your profession? And tell me about the events of the day. Yeah, thank you very much, Alan. You know, I was a sales professional at that time. Uh, and that day we got, we started our day early. We started at 5 a.m. So we got done early at 10 a.m. So I was scheduled to be on the five o'clock flight. Uh, I had a first class seat, gave it up for seat 15A uh, to be, uh, get home earlier to my wife and my family. So I uh, got to the airport early and then um, settled in to see what uh, a very normal flight was going to be like going back from New York to Charlotte after a three day business trip. And that's how it started for me. Fantastic. So, so what, what you got on the plane, it was just a normal, ordinary flight. Well, what seat were you at? 15A, four rows behind the left wing. Yeah. Okay. And, you know, all of a sudden, you know, not soon after, 
all hell broke loose. Tell me about what, what went on and what went on in your mind and what happened there. Well, like you probably have heard from other passengers that they have, it's pretty normal for the first minute or so after you took off. But after you heard a big boom and big explosion, you knew something was going on. But candidly, I didn't really realize the seriousness of the uh, situation until the captain came on and said his famous words, this is your captain brace for impact. That's what I realized, excuse me, that uh, it was a pretty serious situation. Cause I thought he was just going back to the airport. I thought I felt him banking. I thought he was going back to the airport, but that's the moment I realized something uh, a little more serious was going to go on. Yeah. Okay. So you braced for impact. What happened next? Well, I didn't know how to brace for impact, Kelly. I, I didn't, you know, like some passengers and probably uh, most people, I didn't read the instructions. I didn't know anything. I thought I knew everything on the plane. So, uh, Kelly, after as we start taking over the uh, George Washington Bridge, I just put my head down and I started to pray. And that's, uh, you know, because Kelly, at that point in time, as I looked out the window, I was on the left side. The thing went on pretty quick, uh, you know, and. Uh, you know, after you cross the river, it was about 60 or 70 seconds later. So it was, um, it was not a long time from that point on to get to get your final words in. Yeah, exactly. So what happened at impact? What happened when the, when the plane hit the water? Well, for me, I went back in my seat and forward in my seat. It was a really, I was towards the back of the plane. Um, wasn't in the total back. I was, like I said, four rows behind the wing. So it was a pretty jarring hit. Um, so when I came back up, that's when I opened my eyes and looked through the window and I saw a light. So at that point, I knew uh, I was alive and I had a shot, but that's when all the fun really began because water started coming in immediately on the plane. And where I was on the plane, it was about the ankle to knee deep uh, pretty quickly. Yeah. And, and, and you, where, where, how did you evacuate? How did you get off the plane? Well, my game plan, the last thoughts that I had was get the aisle, get up and get out. I kept saying that in my head. That was my game plan. But uh when I got to the aisle, everything, that game plan changed because I heard my mother start talking to me and she said, if you do the right thing, God will take care of you. And the right thing for me was I grew up in small towns outside of Cincinnati, Ohio and Winchester, Virginia. And we always, everybody took care of each other in small towns. So I climbed over the seats to go towards the back of the plane and just see if anybody needed help. And things were moving pretty quick back there. So I just got behind everybody else, started going out. It's like everybody else. And uh, the first light that I saw on the right side of the plane at 10F, I'm like, I'm out of here. But yeah. then I looked out and there wasn't much room on the wing or the boat for me. So that's why I was in the plane for about uh, seven minutes, waist deep in uh, 36 degree water. Okay. Did, did you have to end up in the water for a while or did you get right off the plane wing into a boat? No, no, I never got on the boat, never got on the wing. I, I, uh, when I felt the uh, plane get jarred, I felt it shift. I thought I was going down. So that's why I jumped in the water, started swimming to the closest boat that I could find. Okay. So I, I'm sure at that point you were somewhat hypothermic. I mean, that water that I've seen in the pictures was total ice. It was miserable. It was cold. Yeah, it was thorough. I think they said finally it was 36 degree water. And that's how I ended up in the hospital that night with hypothermia. So it was, uh, it was definitely cold. And um, I was just very fortunate to be able to have my mom and dad made me learn how to swim when I was a kid, because uh, that would have been a little, di little different situation if I hadn't learned how to swim. Yeah, that, that's the story. Okay. Now I'm going to turn the floor over to Valley Collins. Valley is, is another passenger that was on the flight. Valley, tell me about what you were doing at the time, what you were employed at and why you were on flight 1549. 
I was working for a contract manufacturer of consumer products, medical devices, and I had flown up to New York the day before for a business meeting that morning on the morning of the 15th on Long Island. And so I had my meeting and came back to LaGuardia and it was the flight I was scheduled to be on. I guess the only kind of odd thing for me was I really never, ever flew U.S. Airways. I was always a Delta girl coming. I live out in East Tennessee and Delta is just, a, you know, a, an airline that has more options. But that particular trip had a really short advance and the Delta ticket was like $800 more than the U.S. Airways ticket. So I decided to fly U.S. Airways, but because I had no status with U.S. Airways, I really like aisle seats. So the only available aisle seat on the plane was on the last row of the plane. So I was in seat 26D, uh, which is on the right side of the plane, um, very last row. Yeah. So let's let's get the people to understand what the uh, what the seat was like. I, I know that uh, right next to you, there was an empty seat and then there was somebody on the uh, uh, right next to the window. How did that come about? Well, we had it was a completely full flight with 155, what they refer to as souls on board. Well, there was a baby was one of the passengers. So that baby counted as a passenger, even though he wasn't taking up his own seat. So the only empty seat on the plane was in between me and the gentleman at the window. Okay, so that's that's how that came about. So tell us, okay, you got on the plane, you got on there. It's an orbital, ordinary flight, at least so we think at that time. What right. happens next? Tell me what happened to your mind. Well, I mean, like very, very similar for Dave, as Dave said, shortly after takeoff, probably a minute and a half to two minutes, we hear this boom and the plane dropped. And I looked at the guy at the window. He and I had chatted some before takeoff, just pleasantries. And I just asked him, I said, what was that? And he said, it was birds because we were sitting, you know, behind the engines and he could see that it was birds. And then to my left, I started smelling smoke. And that's when I became really aware that we had a dire situation. Because years ago, a pilot had told me what they worry about in the cockpit are birds and fire. So I remember thinking, great, we've got both. I mean, this is not good. And the plane had, you know, stalled out. I, I fly a lot. I'm an engineer. I could tell there's no thrust. We're not climbing. We don't have much altitude. So I was aware very, very quickly that it wasn't a good situation. Okay. So what happened next in your mind? What, what went on in your mind and what happened as this flight was in the air? Now, as, as we know, it's been about three to four minutes before it hits the water. So you, we, you don't have much time. You have a bit of time. You know, you have a, a bit of time for, for stuff. I mean, a commercial is about a minute long. So you, you got about three commercials to do stuff. But what happened next? Well, the flight attendant came up from the back, the rear flight attendant came up and she was trying to get something from behind my seat. So I got out of my seat to grant her access. And she and I had a little bit of a, you know, interchange and she told me to sit back down, but to sit in the middle seat that had previously been empty. So I sat in that middle seat, buckled up as tightly as I could. And I just looked at my seatmate and I said, I have three children to raise, you know, kind of like nobody else on board had anything to live for. But, you know, I was just really my children were four, six and nine. And I thought, you know, this will irrevocably change their life. I may not be the best mother, but I'm their mother. So I was just very sad about all the things I was going to miss. But then kind of the pragmatic part of me kicked in and I realized that my husband didn't know I was on that particular flight. So I pulled out my cell phone which was a BlackBerry at the time. And I turned it on and I sent Steve a text message mm -hmm. and it just said, my flight is crashing. 
because I didn't want him to have to deal with hours, days, you know, a week to get confirmation if I was on board or not. Um, and then my seatmate, he just looked at me and says, put that up. We're out of time. Um, and then Captain Sullenberger came over, like Dave said, so this is the captain brace for impact. So I was in the brace position and then in the brace position, my seatmate, who was still looking out the window, he said to me, be ready. We're going in the water. So that's when I knew we were going in the water. So what happened next? You know, you're in this this situation, you know, David's already told us as soon as the water hit, uh, water started coming in. Uh, You didn't you had to get out. You had to move. Yes, you had to get out. And, you know, before we hit the water, my thought was, well, this plane is going to cartwheel. It's going to bust into a lot of pieces. You know, I'm not expecting it to hold together and for us to land. That just didn't even seem like an option. My thought to myself was, well, swim to the light. If you can swim to the light, just swim to the light. So when the plane didn't bust into a lot of pieces and it was in one piece and I was still in one piece, my first thought was, I've got to get out of here. Embarrassingly enough, I looked at my seatmate and I said, open that window. And he's kind of like, uh, airplane windows don't open. <laughs> but I'm, I'm, <laughs> so, I mean, I just wanted out. But unlike Dave, I do pay attention to the safety card. And I was like, I was in the right brace position. I knew the closest exit was the back. I went to the back um, and the flight attendant was trying to crack open the left rear door. I went over and tried to help her, but there's no way we're going to get that door open because the water pressure is a lot stronger on the outside than we are. Other passengers are coming trying to open the right rear door. And then really, this was the scariest moment for me because in a matter of seconds, the water went from my ankles to above my chest. And as Dave's already said, it was bitterly cold water. And I remember just thinking, oh, Lord, please do not let me drown because the water just it came in so fast and so high because the APU, the auxiliary power unit, fell off the tail of the airplane when we hit the river. So there was just this big hole in the back. That's amazing. So how did you get out? What happened? How did you actually get out? How did the doors open? You're stuck. No, those doors didn't open. The flight attendant. When she realized, she said, oh, no, we're in the water. She said, you have two minutes, go to the wings. And she moved on towards the wings. More passengers were trying to come to the back, thinking the closest exit is the back. Well, I'm sure we're not getting out the back. So I kind of had a peace, a calm come over me. And I just instinctively knew that this was not the time to panic, that panicking was not going to save my life. So I just literally put up both my hands and just started saying, go to the wings, go to the wings in the loudest, strongest Southern voice I could muster in that moment. Um, And so people started to hear me and people started to turn and move towards the wings. And as we moved towards the wings, it was kind of like walking uphill. As I walked uphill, the water subsided. There was a seat cushion floating by. So I grabbed it and put it on my right arm and continued to um, chant, go to the wings until I saw the light of day and I came out on the right wing. And soon you were evacuated onto a boat. I would say I was, I mean, you know, you didn't have a stopwatch, but I would say we were, what was on the wing and then I stepped onto the raft, I was kind of on the corner of a raft and David and I had some interchanges at that point. I would say from the time I made it to the wing till I got on a ferry boat, I'm going to put in the 10 minute range, 10 to 12 minutes maybe. It wasn't immediate because those ferry boats, number one, they had to get to us. Number two, they're not built to be rescue boats. So they really had to slow down and come in easy so they didn't capsize our raft, you know, and push us all up against the plane. They had to be very um, 
a student how they how they handled handled that. So it took a little bit of time. Again, I didn't have a stopwatch. I'm just it wasn't instantaneous, but it wasn't half an hour either. I'm gonna put it around ten minutes. Well, you know, they say when it's something like this happens, time slows down and it days, you know, minutes seem to last. It seemed like they last for hours. Did that happen to you? Um, I wouldn't say that it seemed like it lasted for hours, but from the time that the birds hit to the time I made it to the wing, especially to the time we hit the river, did seem like a fair amount of time. I mean, I had a lot of time to process, you know, not seeing my children, notifying my husband, saying a prayer thinking my husband had always wanted me to quit my job, thinking, well, if I had done that, I wouldn't be on this plane. I mean, you know, there were just a lot of, so it, that it did sort of slow down. Three and a half minutes is a long time if you think it's your last three and a half minutes. Exactly. Okay. Allie, we're going to go on to another guest for a while. I'll come back to you in just a few minutes. Okay, Ben, tell, can you tell us what you were doing at the time and how come you were on plane flight, flight 1549? Yeah, I was director of software engineering for a company here in Charlotte, and I actually went up the day before as well. So I was only there for like 24 hours to uh, evaluate a technology company that we were looking to acquire at the time. You had planned to be on that flight. It was something that was, you know, you went up for a day and you were going to come back to Charlotte the next day. Yes, with two other coworkers who flew up on Tuesday. They asked me to come up on Wednesday. Okay. So tell me, uh, tell me about the flight. Tell me how it happened and what seat you were sitting in. Yeah. Uh, it's funny because in the office before we left, um, one of my coworkers sorted out the seating situation where he was in first class and the other coworker was on the wing and I was in seat 20A in the back. Okay. So you're seat 20A. You got on. It's an ordinary flight. It's an ordinary day. What happened next? Well, I pulled out a book and started reading it. And <clears throat> we sat on the tarmac for a while because of bad weather. And then finally, once we took off, like everybody said, you know, it was only a few minutes into the flight and then loud bang. And that's when everybody started trying to figure out what was going on. And I didn't really know what was going on, but I could tell from everybody else around me that it wasn't good. It wasn't normal. Like Dave said, there was immediate bank to the left, real hard bank. Like I was staring down at the river in the city and because um, I was on the window. And when I looked out the window, I noticed the left engine was on fire. And that's when I, that was the scariest moment in my life. Yeah. Okay. So did you panic? Did you, did you see your life flashing before your eyes? What <laughs> happened next? No, my normal mode is to like try to find silver lining. <laughs> and it was really hard. <laughs> it was really hard because, uh, you know, I was thinking, you know, my plane's on fire and we're thousands of feet above New York City. And, uh, you know, this is not good. And it's the worst situation I've ever been in. And, but I had a seatmate beside of me um, lean over and see the flames. And he looked at me and, with a terrified face and said, Oh, blank, are we going down? And I didn't want to even think about that at the moment. I saw it. Only thing I could think of that was positive was I said, it seems like the pilot's still flying the plane. And then I turned around quickly to look out the window. So he couldn't see if I even believed it or, but that's what I was holding on to that. We were going back to the airport. 
Okay. Uh, did you brace for impact like the others did? Yeah, but it seemed like an eternity. It was 208 seconds from the time the birds hit to the time we hit the water. And roughly half of that, or a little over half of that, I was sitting there hoping to hear, you know, the captain come over and say, you know, we know we got a problem. We're going back to the airport, blah, blah, blah. And it, it never came and it never came. And I kept waiting, kept waiting. <laughs> it seemed like 10 minutes or more. Okay. So 90 seconds before. Yeah, 90 seconds before we hit the water, Captain Celebrator said, this is your captain speaking, brace for impact. And that's when it felt like my heart fell out of my chest because I didn't have that optimism to hold on to anymore. I knew we were going to crash. I just didn't know how. And then, then I did brace for impact. And like Dave said, I, you know, I didn't look at the card. I, I looked around at people around me, and there's a couple of different ways you can brace. So I just followed what they were doing. Uh, good for you. It's a good thing to follow the leader in a situation like this because you don't know what to do otherwise. I must have flown on thousands of flights, so I don't usually pay attention to exits. I don't usually pay attention to what the what the flight attendant is staying these days. But I, it, I, I now know that I better pay attention because you never know when you're going to need that. It's something that's very vital to the flight situation. That's why... Uh, the the safety people make it part of every flight. They make it very much part of every flight because that's one of the few things that can save your life at that time. So I also know you have a fear of water. You have a fear of, of swimming. So tell us about how it impacted you when you hit the water and what you did. Yeah, I peaked up um, from the brace impact <laughs> like I shouldn't have, but I was that seemed to take forever too. I wanted to get over with. Like Valley, I thought we were, you know, I, I thought I was going to die, but I was calm at that point. I was okay. I was like, you know, I've lived a pretty good life. I think I have a lot of people in my life that love me and, you know, I'm okay, this is it. But, but I looked up and saw we were going in the water and it really didn't affect me from the fear of drowning. Cause I just thought, you know, I was going to be, the plane was going to be ripped apart and I wouldn't even survive the impact. It wasn't until after we actually came down and I realized I was in one piece, which I thought that was already the first part of the miracle that we were in one piece and the plane wasn't sinking quickly. But then I did, like Dave said, uh, you know, realize it was up to my ankles almost instantly. And by the time I unbuckled my seatbelt, it was up to uh, almost my knees. And I knew I had to get out. Okay. So where did you evacuate the plane? What was your route to get out of? Yeah, it ties in with like Valley's story is um, I looked around and like uh, there, there was just this bottleneck in the aisle, I didn't even get into the aisle. So I heard the flight attendant in the back say, go forward, go forward, go over seats if you have to or whatever. So I looked up in front of me and there was a lady climbing over the seats to get forward because we couldn't use the back door. And so I just followed her, you know, it was orderly and in a certain fashion. Right. So. I followed her and somehow I got past the doors on the left wing and I noticed the flight attendant up front beckoning people to come up front because there were people turning around going to the wing doors and it was pretty much empty up front. The aisle didn't have water in it yet. Uh, I jumped down into the aisle and just followed her orders and exited through the right hand side uh, up front into the raft. Okay, so, so how long do you think that took? Probably... From the time time we landed, I would say less than 30, maybe 30 seconds. 
pretty. It seemed longer, but but I'd say probably thirty seconds or pretty amazing. And how long did it take you from the lifeboat to get on a more proper appropriate boat to to get to land? Uh, the one of the greatest sights I remember, recall is just the light coming in through the door because it was dark inside the plane when we landed and seeing that light, you know, from New York City just over the Hudson coming in, it was like this a big positive sign. But out the door, I could see a ferry coming at us about, I estimate, five or six hundred yards. And I think it took me five, six minutes before I boarded the ferry. It may have been a little longer because we we went the route of, you know, getting the injured on first and women and children and then men. And we also the ferry started coming towards uh, uh, the life raft and we waved it over to the wing because there were people on the wing that was slippery. And it was like uh, one of my coworkers actually opened a door and he was on the tip of the wing. And that right wing was like down in the water. The water was up to his waist. So they went over there and picked off a couple of them first and then they came back and got us. But I was fine. I was like in the first class raft where they were serving martinis and stuff. You know, it's funny. I tell people, <laughs> I tell people all the time, those first class tickets are worth it because those rafts, are <laughs> it's worth the extra money to fly first class, right? Uh, just a question, Ben. Were they serving Grey Goose like they did at one of the parties afterwards? <laughs> <laughs> no, but yeah, they they did uh, sponsor our first anniversary, so that was nice. Yeah, for everybody that's listening, uh, these uh, many of these uh, survivors got together once a year afterwards, and one of the parties was uh, the one year anniversary, and uh, they had a boat they chartered that went out to the site where the plane went down, and they actually had Grey Goose uh, vodka that was sponsored. Uh, the Grey Goose Company gave him some some Grey Goose, which is a great uh, hubris thing to do to, to toast a, a very difficult time. I I, I think uh, you know we are blessed to have a sense of humor to laugh through some of these things. If we didn't have a sense of humor, we'd be crying. Okay. I'm now going to turn the floor over to Stephen, uh, Stephen Malone. I don't know if everybody knows Stephen, but he is the photographer that has been involved in uh, many of the, uh, in, in the pictures that were done. So I'm going to try and draw up the pictures here, at least some of them. So everybody can see that. And I, Stephen, if you can comment a little bit on some of these pictures, because uh, this is on the radio to begin with, and not everybody will have the opportunity to to know. Here's the first picture, Stephen. Can you see that one? Yeah. Yeah, I can see it. Okay. So what is this? So, yeah. So uh, this is one of my favorite uh, images from the project um we're staring at the uh wing with the rest of the fuselage uh completely submerged so what had kind of evolved um up to this point is that uh we're now actually on the second day of the salvage operation and the rope that the coast guard used to tie the aircraft to the pier it drifted down uh, downstream, they brought it over the boat and then tied it off to the uh, pier just south of the chambers. And then the strength of the current and the weight of the aircraft broke the rope. 
And so the aircraft ended up uh, sinking. And so this was a, one of the images of the aircraft uh, pretty much submerged. Like it, it does completely submerge. There's a couple more images, but this is probably the, my favorite one where the, the wing is still visible and it's like casting a shadow on the ice and you've got the New Jersey steam in the background. And it just pretty much like encapsulates, you know, uh, the event for me. Uh, when you look at this image, you know, I think it's one of the standalones where you really understand, you know, your, your location, you know, you see the Empire State Building in the distance. Um, yeah, and also you see all this ice that has now like drifted down uh, from the northern part of the river that fortunately, thankfully, was not there uh, on January 15th. Yeah. And I mean, you can see this ice and you can see that it's cold and you can see that it's here's another image. What is this, Stephen? So, um, yeah, the title of this picture is Diver Coming Out. And I'm shooting from the uh, salvage crane that's parked uh, next to the pier. And again, you can see the aircraft is underwater. And another one of the emergency uh, shoots is kind of like self-exploded. I think this is probably one of the ones in the uh, tail section of the aircraft that they didn't use that just like popped up after being submerged for a certain amount of time. And so the divers are uh, going down and checking out the aircraft. They're looking for structural integrity and they're also putting a sling underneath the fuselage to pull the aircraft out of the water. And so these divers wear wetsuits and then on top of the wetsuits, they have overalls. And they literally, they have like a pressure heater, pressure uh, washer, you know, that you would use to like clean your driveway so that's heating water and they have just basically a garden hose stuck in their pants. And so the hot water is coming in to um, create this insulation between the wetsuit and the, you know, 36 degree water that they're working in. Okay. Let me drop another image here because I think this will show why it's so important to do this. Here's the diver in the water. Uh, talk about that a little bit. Yeah, this I'm, I'm, I really like your edit. These are pulling all of my favorite photographs from this. Uh, so, yeah, this is the uh, top side of the diver. We're looking down into the water. And I've always loved like a certain amount of the abstract aspect of this image. You know, I work as a fine art photographer, but I am a painter in denial. And this is one of the images that I find very painterly. And so the diver is approaching the side of the aircraft and the thing that still optically like tricks me is that like there's this object on the left hand side that optically kind of looks like it's actually parallel on the water that's I believe part of the aircraft and then you see this like tiny little yellow speck on the right hand side that's also like a I guess air sensor on the side of the fuselage and then the water line and everything and so the divers yeah he's just he's there and I think they're just like working their way uh along to make sure that there's no uh, metal sticking out that's going to cut the uh, the straps because they had to use nylon rather than chain because they didn't want to they wanted to keep the fuselage in as close of you know the condition it was when it hit the uh, hit the Hudson yeah just a comment on my edits here I am a photographer as well so I, I love your photography work it was really apropos for what what you what happened that day so very important that that the work you did is is really really uh, important and did a great job here and and so on. What do we got here, Stephen? 
So this is titled bug. Um, this is the other engine um, that's separated uh, when they hit the water. Um, when they uh, first crashed, um, and I actually, um, maybe uh, one of the passengers can answer this question. I don't know um, if this, which engine this is, if this is, uh, which, which way did you spin when you hit? Because the, the engine hit, it separated off and it spun the aircraft like 90 degrees, if I remember correctly, it's the right? left engine. Because the left engine? spun towards New York, right? Okay. Ben, Dave, y'all agree? I believe it's yep. the left engine that actually came off. Okay. Yeah, that's part of the reason it was sticking out of the water and the right engine was under the water because of the right. weight of the because of the weight. That's why it's that makes sense. Okay, right. It so yeah, so the engine wasn't this the one that they were really talking about in the movie, likewise, right? This was all what the movie was about. This in was it functional or not? Yeah. Yeah, the, the big controversy in the movie was the was the engine functional enough that they could have actually landed at another airport rather than dutch, ditching at the on the water. And uh, well, I think you look at this and you say, how functional could this be? <laughs> yeah, that's the one I was staring at burning all the way down. And I didn't, I didn't even know the one on the right wasn't operable. Yeah, sure, because you can't see it when, from where you're sitting. You have no idea that both of them are down. Right. Um, because, you know, as everybody on the aircraft knows, you know, um, the airplanes are designed to safely land with one with only one engine. You know, they're built so they can generate enough thrust and still, you know, function as an aircraft. But it was just this very unusual situation where they lost all uh, all power simultaneously. I think the NTSB ruled that it was a one in eight billion chance that birds will knock out both engines of a jet Eight billion. Eight billion with a B. Because, you know, bird wow. strikes happen about eight or 9,000 times a year in the U.S. Typically, it's one engine. Like you say, you fly back to the airport. But I think when they did their report, Ben, Dave, correct me, but yeah, I believe it was a one in eight billion that birds would dock out both engines. Now, Molly, now, maybe you can uh, help us with this because you're up on the statistics. What are the chances of surviving a water uh, landing? Oh, I don't know. I don't have the statistics on that. I can't, I can't answer. I can't answer that. I just know there haven't been a whole lot of successful ones out of jet this is, I agree with that. Yeah, it, it's it's not very successful. A water landing is not a good thing. So when they tell you about a water preservers and stuff like that, when you hit the water, you know, if you hit the water, the chances are you're not going to have a chance to use them. I think at, at this at the time of history, and I don't think that it has changed, that it is the only aircraft to make a water ditching, uh, commercial aircraft in the water with zero casualties. I think that's correct. Correct. Yes. I believe that is, I believe that is an accurate statement. I also think at the time when this occurred, like now our flight is in a lot of the flight simulators for pilot training. At that time, I don't think it was. So a lot of the training that pilots had about what they call water ditchings, they call them ditchings, was just what they read in a book. They hadn't actually, you know, done it or even done it in a flight simulator. Exactly. So the other thing that's changed is how they equip flights that was not considered an overwater route. So we weren't supposed to have all the water safety things that we had in place that we were fortunate to have regardless of the route. Yeah. Let's look at this one now. Okay. I, I, I'm sure many of you have uh, 
images of this. And so, St Stephen, please take us through this and tell us about this. And then I'm going to get the passengers to tell us about this as well. Yeah, so I uh, was fortunate enough that uh, NTSB allowed me in to photograph the inside of the aircraft. And so I was the first uh, photographer to gain access to the fuselage. And uh, this is an image, you know, looking back from the you know, first class seats all the way back. And, you know, one of the things that, that just struck me when I was inside of the thing was the cascade of the light and, you know, the cross that it's basically forming in there. You know, it's like, and it's because, you know, the doors and the window uh, emergency exits and the wings are all removed at this point. So it's like, there's really no other time um, where the light is gonna look like this inside of an aircraft, whether or not it's been in, in the Hudson River. Um, so that's part of one other thing. And the other thing that I've always just found, you know, interesting is that it's kind of like the hotel, um, clothes hangers, you know, that that's the one thing that did, um, stay in place so that the hangers didn't come out. <laughs> okay. David, tell me your thoughts on this. Well, yeah, I, I've had the opportunity living in Charlotte, like Ben does to go inside the plane. So I have never seen it with this kind of light only inside the museum, but um, it uh, it was pretty racked up. I you know Ben, I don't know if you've valid been in, but when I went in, it was pretty racked up. They left it pretty much in state the way it was when they got it to Charlotte. But um, this is a little rougher than what I saw when I was inside the plane after the uh, after it got to the museum. Okay, Ben, what do what do you think about this? Well, the first thing I thought when you brought it up was just picturing me running towards. <laughs> David's camera, but that's the way I exited. But like Dave, I've been been in it since, and it it was in rough shape when we got it back for sure. It still pretty much looks like it what what it did does there, except some of the things were removed. Were removed. Okay, Valley, take it away. Tell me what your thoughts are on this. Well, my thoughts are like my seat was so far to the back you can't even see it. <laughs> so I thought it's, it's a lot of people to overcome to make it out. That's that's what my thought is. I've been on board um, on the plane again for three year anniversary. We got to go to Charlotte and see the plane, and I'll say I'll say two things. One, I remember just having this. I have huge, tremendous gratitude for Sully and Styles, of course. As silly as it sounds tremendous gratitude just for the Hudson River for being there being wide enough not having a bunch of ice in it but also just for every engineer every mechanic every person that built that airplane and turned every nut and bolt um, because it held together and did what it really shouldn't have done um, when I saw it the first time I was standing outside of it and one of the engineers who did not know I was a passenger and I was standing with my seatmate we were in row 26. Well, if you look on the outside of the plane, there's a big crimp that's about at row 22. And the engineer looked at me and he said, this thing should have busted apart right here. We have no idea. We cannot understand why it held together. And um, Brian and I looked at each other like, wow, well, glad it did because row 26, we were just far behind where it should have. So just, just a tremendous sense of gratitude for a piece of equipment that kind of rose above and beyond. I don't know about Dave or Ben, but a few days after the event, I was interviewed um, by NTSB and Airbus engineers. And the Airbus engineers were so interested in every detail that I could recall or remember. And their whole focus was 
talking to people like you help us build better airplanes. So I yeah. thought that was a really great perspective from them. So just I agree. Yeah, I had the same experience. Yeah. It's fascinating that, you know, we learn from our mistakes and, and it's fascinating that the Airbus engineers then went back and helped to design their planes better as a result. And, and that, that's a good thing that that happens. So very important that we do these things as well. Yeah, if, if I remember correctly and feel free to, you know, correct me, but I, I spoke to them as well about this just out of curiosity because I'm also an airplane fanatic. So just, you know, there was an element of, you know, just excitement about once I knew that everyone was alive that, uh, about being there. And I believe that the aircraft are like designed to hit the water at like 90 miles an hour. Like they're designed to structurally stay intact. And I think that this aircraft hit like close to or above 150 miles an hour. 160, so really, I was told. 160, yeah. So like it really did perform above and beyond uh, expectations. Yeah, exactly. Okay, let's bring it back to this one now. Okay, here, which engine do you, is this one, Stephen? So this would be the engine, yeah, that was stayed, uh, that was still attached. And I should have, I guess, been able to do the math to eliminate one from the other when we were asking earlier. Um, so this, yeah, came up, and that's just some of the sludge from the uh, Hudson River that came out of it. Um, it is just, you know, in the honor of the Canadian geese titled feather. And <laughs> another good sense of humor. I like that. Yes. Okay. Let's go for that. And what do we have here, Stephen? It's called Portal. So this is Portal. Yeah. So this is one of the few um, more like optical illusions, a little bit. Um, but it's the uh, Economy Row uh, tray. Ah. So this is one of the few. I opened up the. Uh, uh, tray in one of the rows and just captured, yeah, the water stains and the mud that had just kind of embedded itself. Here's the plane uh, being taken, I believe, to uh, be looked at by the safety people. Is this not right? Yeah. So uh, once, so it, you know, came in on a barge and the tail was attached, the wing was still attached. One of the engines, G came in, immediately got the uh, the other engine off of the aircraft and took it back, to, I believe, to Ohio to keep uh, doing the same thing that Airbus was, is just to find out, you know, what happened. And, again, you know, similar, like, you know, they throw frozen turkeys into their engines to test these things out and everything. So they're finding out, like, you know, how many birds took the, took the engines out. But, yeah, so after they took off the wings and the tail and everything, they need to move it to a long-term uh, long storage location. And so they loaded it on these crazy hydraulic trailers that are all uh, low slung. They're individually steered. So you can make like crazy turns around uh, streets and everything. And uh, in the area of New Jersey, there is a bunch of older low hanging bridges. And so we went from Bayonne with the aircraft and ended up not being able to clear one of the bridges on the roadways. And so this 45 minute journey ended up becoming an eight hour journey to get up north, to get to the uh, next bridge that was high enough to then bring it back down around the roadways. And so we ended up in like different parts of like suburban New Jersey with an aircraft on a trailer going through neighborhoods. And so I, we had a 
New Jersey State Police escort with us, you know, blocking traffic and, you know, spotters, watching wires and everything. And so one of the state troopers was kind enough actually to drive my truck for me. So I'm shooting from my sunroof uh, in a bunch of these images, like capturing moments like this. And so the title of this image is Objects Are Closer. And it's a little bit of a reference also to um, one of the old uh, comics from The Far Side, where, and you know, I don't know if you remember The Far Side, but it was just like one square image. And there was one uh, comic that I did, and it was just an image of a, of a mirror. And in the mirror was just a, an eyeball. And underneath it, it just said, Objects Are Closer Than They Appear. Excellent. Um, Here's another image. Uh, she's looking at you, you called this one. Yeah. I had just kind of got a strong attachment to this aircraft, as I'm sure all of the passengers do. Um, and, you know, I just, I see it as a wounded animal. You know, it just, um, you know, it's, it's limping, it's lost an engine. Um, you know, it almost, you know, it feels like it's a little bit like up on, uh, you know, it's almost a puppet, you know, with the strings and the cables, the way it's uh, attached at the moment. Yeah. It looks like that. And uh, Dali, do you have any thoughts on this? And other than, again, just the gratitude. I mean, that plane did more than it was built to do. So um, I'm just, you know, I'm just thankful for it. That's that sounds very um, simple. But it, at the end of the day, most things are pretty simple. And so I'm just, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm thankful for the guy that flew it. I'm thankful for the people that built it. I'm thankful for the passengers on it. I mean, we cooperated well and we handled a very stressful situation. Um, as Dave said, you know, I saw people helping people. You saw some of the best of humanity that day. And, um, you know, and I also think where we were, you know, in New York City, who had had such a terrible event with planes, you know, just eight short years before, um, I'm, you know, I'm just thankful. I know there was a lot of controversy about how was the maintenance done on the left engine and all that. I just chose not to be a part of that. I was just uh, thankful that it turned out like it did. Okay, let me try to bring this up now and bring us back to everybody together. Okay, so uh, thank you, Stephen. Thank you for taking us through a lot of those pictures and thank you for taking My pleasure. And, and Stephen, I love the trade table. When I saw that one the first time, I was like, if you ask 10 people what that was, I bet not one of them would tell you it's a trade table on an airplane. So I think that one's really creative, really cool. Thank you. Okay. So I'm going to ask uh, each of our, our passengers to go through how this has changed your life since then. And uh, what, you know, what happened after, did you change your career? Did you do other things? And, and, and where you are now as a result of that. And I'll start with David again, because he started this parade. Oh, well, thank you. Well, my life's dramatically changed. Uh, yes, I, you know, I, I left my company about four years later and I've been to speak all over the world. Um, it's been, it's been life transforming, you know, I've been able to help raise money for the American Red Cross, I've been having the opportunity to, you know, authors. Now my third book is coming out in this next week, so it's been able to change my life. I think the biggest thing that's changed in my life, though, is I've become much less judgmental. Where you know I would probably be pretty quick to judge people before this all happened, but like Valley said, the best of humanity came out. And one of the things that really stood out to me is it didn't matter whether you're black, white, Asian, gay, lesbian. 
everybody just pulled together. And if everybody could model what happened on that plane that day, this whole country would be a whole lot better off. Yeah, that's a wonderful statement, David. And, and I know you go around the world and you teach business people and other leaders how to lead better. And I think that the messages that you give and you impart as a result of this process is something that's very important. And uh, you and I talked about that on another one of my shows and we, we have brought that forward. Tell us, tell us a little bit about the, the message you would like people to have as a result of your experience. Well, you know, I, I, number one, you know, always be aware. You know, things change very quickly, especially now in the world. Things are changing every moment of every day. So think awareness. But uh, like Valley said, my whole message now is about gratitude. I, uh, this, this summer, I had the opportunity to go back into the Hudson River and, and swim with the Navy SEALs. And one of the things that really came out to me as I was approaching uh, that 3.1 mile swim when I got to New York was about how much gratitude I had not only for what the river provided that day, but for all the people that really helped me get to where I was at and how people really came together that day. So, and you know, like Valley, my whole message now is about you know, transforming your life with gratitude. And this show is about transformation. And that's what I think people have to realize that the events in your life can change in a minute. And as a result of those events, you should be prepared to take it forward. You know, I was supposed to be dead in 2003. I was diagnosed as having ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. Fortunately, they were wrong, but it's changed my life. And I spend my time giving back now as a result of that. I think it's important that people take these as opportunities. These are really wonderful gifts we've been given. We should take those and move forward. Okay, Valley, you're next. Um, well, one of the things I tell people is when we backed away from the gate at LaGuardia that day and no one had ever come to sit in an empty middle seat, again, I didn't put together full flight that this baby's going to sit with its mom. I didn't put all that together. We're just, me and my seatmate, we just kept waiting. Okay, like who's going to come sit in our middle seat? You know, or how much elbow room we're going to have. And when we backed away and no one came to the seat, I looked at him. I said, well, this must be our lucky day because we're going to have all this elbow room to Charlotte. So, you know, one of my mantras is, you know, every day is a lucky day, even if it's a bad day. It's still a lucky day that you're here. I uh, went part time with my job. I had to take some uh, some time off after a little bit because I was diagnosed with PTSD, as I'm sure they, uh, Dave and Ben can maybe speak to as well. And I had three small children. I ended up going part time for a few years and then I ended up um, not working. I, I got asked to speak and tell my story once and then that sort of kind of a mushroom cloud effect. I think people just, I think people like stories that they can identify with. And most people have been a passenger on an airplane. And if you've been a passenger on an airplane, you've wondered, well, what would happen if, you know, if this flight wasn't successful? And so I think there's a fascination with just hearing from someone that's gone through that experience. And the, um, the takeaways, the kind of the five key learnings I share with people are about being kind, being empathetic to others for like with mental illness. If you've never dealt with anything like that, maybe just have a bit of empathy, staying physically fit. Really big one is perspective. You know, just as cliche as it is, just don't sweat the small stuff. Um, Because in the grand scheme of life, most things are not worth getting our blood pressure up over. And then the last one is just time. Utilizing, enjoying, and giving, you know, the time we have. We were, I think Dave and Ben would agree with me kind of feels like we're in the bonus round of life. Like we got these days, we really sat in a moment and didn't think we would see another sunrise. So um, enjoying every sunrise. 
even though I'm usually asleep when the sun rises, but I do enjoy that it's happening. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Like, okay, Ben, this is your chance now to tell us what you've learned from this and how this has changed your life. Yeah, I think a lot of it echoes what Valley and Dave said. I mean, gratitude is the first word that comes to mind. Just gratitude for everything. Just waking up every morning, you know, 13 extra years. Uh, we've been bonus years now. We're going on and, um, you know, gratitude for everyone on board. Like Dick mentioned, again, I'm going to echo his statements on the importance of diversity there. And we came together as as a team to help make the outcome successful as it was. But gratitude and uh, just being authentic. Uh, I've learned to be more positive, stay away from negative negativity, negative thoughts, things like that. I've been more mindful, more spiritual. But overall, I don't think it's really changed my life a lot, except for I just become a better version of myself. I like to think I still try to work on that every single day, but in the immediate aftermath, I realized that it was going to be something positive. I wasn't going to let it be negative, even though like Valley, I had PTSD, but, but it's basically boils down to gratitude for everything you get. Even if it's something bad, it's, you can learn from it. Okay. Uh, Paula. I'm going to call on Paula now. Paula Pauls is here, and she is a person that works with, with Ben Bostick. And she worked with him back then, and she's working with him again. So, Paula, I, I want you to bring your perspective in this. I know you weren't on the flight on the Hudson, but you lived through it. You basically saw Ben live through it. How has this affected Ben, and how has this affected you? Sure. And I'll just start by saying the photography is stunning and just it's really I'm grateful to hear all of you describe your experiences. It's really inspiring. I met Ben uh, about five years before that flight. Uh, I took a job at a company here in Charlotte and in IT and Ben worked for me. So I have also had the opportunity to see Ben through time uh, going on 20 years almost that we've known each other. And I was not on the flight, so I was not close to this event in person, but I was close to Ben and I remember his Facebook feed going viral and you see this sort of thing and it's very surreal that this person that you know is going through this event and then just today, hearing him talk about, you know, 200 seconds and doing the you know, quick math, it's like any given year is like 32 million-ish seconds. And then knowing Ben for almost 20 of those, and you think, wow, all these opportunities of 200 seconds that could really teach you something. Um, when I tell people that I know someone that was on the flight and that, you know, one of the questions that you often get asked is, well, how did it change them? And it was great to hear Ben talk about his point of view on that, because I always say, I don't really think it changed him, but he, he became more of Ben. So I really uh, feel very grateful to have known Ben through all this and kind of seen him evolve as a person and be more Ben. So that's it. Everybody, I think, should just be more Ben. <laughs> Excellent. Okay, Stephen Malone, can you tell us a little bit about how this affected you and how this flight on the High of the Hudson changed you as a photographer? Um, yeah, it's, I mean, it was kind of a catalyst onto the national stage for me. Um, you know, I had a couple of clients, but I didn't have MSNBC and NBC News calling me to not only use my photographs, but put me on camera. 
to talk to me to hear the stories because like I said, I was the first photographer to get inside the aircraft. And so uh, people really wanted to hear and get access to the images. And so it, you know, it drastically changed my life. And I ended up uh, working with a new gallery that I'm still with today, Front Room Gallery, who's, you know, been showing the work uh, since 2009. And, uh, you know, it's just, uh, it's been a wonderful experience. And January 15th is always uh, a great day of celebration also for me, because it's my wife's birthday, um, along with Sully's. So uh, unfortunately, I can't join on a lot of the uh, annual anniversaries, but uh, it's really good to see you all here on on the screens today because we've seen each other in person a few times. Can't remember which ones, when, where, but I know we've all seen each other and been in touch and everything. So, well, and thank you all for the kind words. Well, in 13 years, you've had a lot of opportunities to get together and relive this, but I think it's important for people to realize that this is a very positive story. This is a story that about people doing the best, you know, some of our best always comes out of the worst situations, some of the worst situations that ever exist. And I'd like every, our listeners to realize that this is a situation where people grew and, and they helped to change and they continue to help change the world as a result of that. And I would like people to take this as a positive moment and, and learn that positive moment and 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 perhaps think about what you're doing and and realize that the next four minutes of your life could change things forever for everyone and, and this is something that I want people to take home and, and learn from and, and, and take that David do you have any words to say in parting from this that you'd like to add to that I just think that um you know, I look back at the situation where it was a blessing. You know, I think God puts, puts opportunities like this in front of people. And, you know, he put 155 people who didn't know each other, care about each other, come together to something that had never been done in the history of aviation. And I think that this was a symbol for hope when the country was going through such a challenging time in 2009, economically especially, that this is a sort of a way that people can look at, you know, the best humanity steps up, and when something bad happens, a good outcome can come out. So I'll just leave it. We're going through some tough times right now. And if people could just start looking at bigger pictures, like, you know, if I have hope, I have faith, I can pull this thing off. Yeah, and I'd like to add to that. You know, we, geez, the United States and Canada and the world, they're going through devastating times right now. It's one of the most difficult times I've seen on the history of the planet. But, you know, we've gotten through those times. We've gotten through the USA uh, 1549 flight on the Hudson. We've got through everything. Everything should work out if we give it the chance to work out. Okay. Dad, do you have something to add to that? Yeah. Like you said, we can all get through it. We'll, we'll get through it. Uh, and hopefully as a team, like we did that day 13 years ago. Okay. Fally. I know you have a, a you're a gifted speaker, and and I'd like you to have the the last words on this, so to speak, so you can add to that with your eloquent style. Wow, the pressure of that! I'm not. I don't know that I'm ready. Um, no, I think I, I saw a sign one time years ago, and it said, "One moment can bend your life." I think the moment that we sat on 1549 definitely bent everyone's life on that plane. And I think for the majority of us, it bent us in a more positive direction. 
I'm not saying for everybody, but I think for most of us it did. And hopefully there has been a collateral effect that we have impacted those that we love and that they then impact those that they love to make the world just a slightly better place. Mother Teresa once said, she said, I alone cannot change the world, but I can cast the stones into the waters and create many ripples. So I think with our positivity and bending toward a more positive outlook on life, hopefully all of us on board that plane, we didn't just make a big ripple in the Hudson. Hopefully we've made some positive ripples in our life that are helping people get through this kind of unprecedented time that we're in. Ladies and gentlemen, we've been visiting today with some amazing people. We've been visiting with Valley Collins. We've been visiting with David Sanderson. We've been visiting with Ben Bostic. We've been visiting with uh, Paula Paul. And we've been visiting with Stephen Malone. Today is an auspicious day in aviation history. 13 years ago, on January 15th, 2009, U.S. Airways Flight 1549, an Airbus A320 on a flight from New York, uh, from LaGuardia Airport to Charlotte, North Carolina, struck a flock of birds shortly after air takeoff, losing all engine power. Unable to reach an airport for an emergency landing, Chelsea Sully Sullenberg and Jeffrey Stiles glided the plane to a ditching in the the Hudson River in Midtown Manhattan. All 150 people on board were rescued by nearby boats with only a few injuries. This water landing of a powerless jetliner with no deaths became to be known as the miracle on the Hudson. It was the most successful ditching in aviation history. The board uh, rejected the notion that the pilot could have uh, avoided ditching or returning to LaGuardia or diverting to nearby Ketterboro Airport. Everyone knows the story. It was dramatized in the 2016 movie Summer. I would like to thank all our guests for being here and spending the time with us and helping us to make this a very positive moment for all the people listening to the show. I'm Dr. Laika. Talk to you soon. You've been listening to How to Live a Fantastic Life. Did you know that you can get a free copy of Dr. Laika's book, The Secrets to Living a Fantastic Life? Yep. Just visit 13gpnow.ca and we'll send it right to you. That's the number 13, gpnow.ca. And you'll want to subscribe right here on this page so you don't miss a single episode. We'll see you next week. Have a fantastic day. 